When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, you name it, we discuss it, pop culture podcast. Very excited to be here for this episode. Um, This has been an episode that I think I've been sort of chomping at the bit to do for quite a while now, and it's a little bit of a uh, break from our current, our, our, our standard Midnight Myth style episode, because we're not talking about a movie a TV show, a poem or play. We're going to talk about four movies tonight, which is ambitious to say the least. Here's the idea. I've been kicking around the this thought of what, what filmmaker has captured the zeitgeist of the post 9-11 film era? Who out there is telling the narrative of Americana in film in a way that is a commercially successful and b substantive in its uh, in its discussion about the american experiment and when you put that lens on asking what director fills that there's only one and that is christopher nolan yes the only director out there who is making critically and uh, uh, economically successful work for the box office that critiques the American experiment. And that is of course the British director, Christopher Nolan, Yes, which is not lost on any of us, but you're absolutely right. He is the one name that comes to mind as someone who speaks to all of us. Uh, and by all of us, I don't mean that every single person is a Christopher Nolan fanboy or fangirl, um, but that he's the rare artist who straddles the critical and financial line, who creates work that appeals to so many levels of society and so many levels of person because he's able to reach down deep to something that's in all of us. And what we want to do tonight is take a look at his body of work with a specific emphasis on four movies that speak to us and we think say something about 
uh, this point in his career uh, and how far he has come as an artist. Uh, and we're excited to see where that takes us. This isn't the first time that we have looked at the body of work of a specific artist. The last time we did this was with David Lynch. Um, but I think we found that with Christopher Nolan, just like with Lynch and with so many auteur directors today, we have storytellers who come back to themes, who come back to characters, who recycle things that are meaningful to them and continue to evolve their relationships to those themes throughout their careers. So how this episode will work, we picked out four different um, movies that we feel like can encapsulate a then, less than, and then now feel. And we decided to look primarily at the climaxes of those movies to ask ourselves, you know, thematically, what are these movies ultimately saying in their climaxes, in their ends, and draw a line between them. And then at the end of that discussion, we will come to kind of what it all means. Um, this might take more than one episode. We're not sure how long this will go, so we're not going to limit it. It's a chance this could be part one, or we might get to it all. We shall see. The movies that we picked out were Memento, which came out in 2000, uh, The Dark Knight, eight years later, 2008, and the second of the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, uh, Inception, that came out in 2010, two years later, then four years later after that, Interstellar. Now, one might ask, Derek, why these four movies? Why did you pick them out? And in part, because they're my four favorites. And I'm going to be completely transparent. Of the Christopher Nolan movies, they're my favorite ones that I have seen. So I naturally gravitated towards them. But I also think on a deeper level, I think our, all four movies say something about the zeitgeist by which Christopher Nolan is trying to represent, speak to, and be about. Um, and so I think there is a thread between these four movies that we can connect. And uh, I don't know if this is intentional. I don't know if this is me reading into it. But we're here at the Midnight Myth, so <clears throat> excuse me. We're going to figure it out. Yeah, and this isn't to say that movies like Insomnia and Following and Dunkirk and The Prestige are not part of this conversation uh, and don't play into these same themes, because they absolutely do. They are part of the vision of the same director. And that's why we want the conversation to continue once we're done with this podcast. So if you want to reach out, if you want to jump into this conversation and share your thoughts on this director's particular style of work, please, please reach out to us. We are on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we would love to know your thoughts on this iconic, modern, contemporary director. Also, if you're at it, make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app and leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, because that helps us reach a bigger audience and get the conversation to grow. All right, so a few fun, just sort of uh, nuts and bolts things. Uh, Memento came out in 2000. It was the second feature uh, directed by Nolan. He co-wrote it with his brother, Jonathan. Uh, most uh, Nolan movies are co-written co with Jonathan. Not all of them. Not all of them on this list were. Uh, its current critical evaluation on Rotten Tomatoes, it's standing at 92% critics, 94% users, favorable rating, and it grossed globally, according to uh, 
Box Mojo, I forget the website I used, around $39 million. It was an art house film. Eight years later, The Dark Knight comes out. This had a gross box office sale of $1 billion, with a B, $4,558,444. It stands at 94% critics' uh, approval and 94% user approval in uh, Rotten Tomatoes. In between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises comes Inception, which uh, was in 2010. It grossed $882 million. Its critical score is at 86 on Rotten Tomatoes, a little bit of a dip from The Dark Knight, and its user score 91%. However, still, for the most part, critically and fan-loved. And then when we get to Interstellar, Interstellar grossed $677 million some odd dollars. Critics score 71%. The critics were not overwhelmingly, well, they were majoritarily positive, but 71, lowest of all of the Christopher Nolan um, critic Rotten Tomato scores, 85% positive rating from users. Um, if we look at from you know 2000 to 2014, Christopher Nolan is dominating the box office post-momentum. Predominantly, the critics and the users on Rotten Tomato love him. So there is something to this. Other than Interstellar at a 71% critical score, um, he really has found a way in film to do something fairly unique for our time, which is defined by adaptation and serialization, meaning... We are not doing original stories. We're adapting them. However, he did do Batman, which was an adaptation. And serialization, telling one long story with each each movie, the next chapter in that next long serial. Um, he's doing unique in that most of his movies are standalone or tight, small trilogies. And they are making buttloads of money and people overwhelmingly love them. And it says a lot that major studios are willing to take a chance on movies that are not the Avengers or are not a Harry Potter shared universe. It takes a lot of trust for a major studio to say, you and your brother are writing really smart, complicated, non-linear, non-traditional movies, and we think they're suitable for a wider audience. So that tells you something about uh, the general popular confidence in this artist. And I want to back up to something that you said uh, just in a statement about Christopher Nolan and why he's popular, and that's the word zeitgeist. Now, you've probably heard the word zeitgeist before, and you've probably used the word zeitgeist before, and it is in our vocabulary in a way that I feel like um, it hasn't been for a long time because we're able to in this globalized, interconnected world, easily kind of pinpoint the spirit of our age, right? Uh, even though there's a lot of information out there, we all are in communication with one another, and we can kind of say what the dominant feeling is in our circles or in our wider circles or in our wider, wider circles. But what is a zeitgeist, really? And this comes back to uh, the 18th and 19th century to German philosophy. And it's just that. It's the spirit of the age or the spirit of the times. 
Uh, it's defined as an invisible agent or force dominating the characteristics of a given epoch in world history. It's often attributed to the philosopher Hegel. But it's also associated with fashion, associated with fads, associated with things that come and go and are in our mind for just a short time. Is Christopher Nolan the voice of the zeitgeist is kind of my question that leads us into this conversation tonight. And what is his relationship to the spirit of the times? You know, it's interesting that you say that before we start talking about the exact particulars of the movie. And one thing that you said that rung out to me was that due to the interconnected nature of our current political and cultural discourse, that the zeitgeist is easier to pin down. And one thing that I think is ironic that Christopher Nolan's ultimate lesson from these four movies is that it's not easy to pin down. Right. Is that there is no clear objective answer. Time and time again, he leaves the audience um, able to and entrusts them to fill the ends of the story because the narratives don't fundamentally answer the questions that they raise. So if our era is easy to pin down and we use Christopher Nolan and in particular Memento, The Dark Knight, Inception, and Interstellar as the way to pin them down, there's only one word that I would use to describe this zeitgeist, which is ambiguity or the very lack of the ability to pin it down. Ooh, yeah, already getting into like really interesting territory here. And in kind of asking this question, I still think before we start to uh, take apart these movies and their climaxes, we need to sort of understand the cultural space that we are in, right? So I was thinking about what, what age are we in? What is our epoch? If we're looking back and we are beings of the future, we're looking back at the, you know, the end of the 20th century into the 21st century, this generation that we're living in, what will people say about us? And they'll probably call us the information age. They'll probably say that we are born out of the digital revolution, that we are complex and interconnected, that we live off of self-reference, that we curate these private lives and public lives for ourselves on social media, and that we are raised in the war on terror, we are raised in the shadow of 9-11. We are raised in a place where we have both shown incredible deference and also incredible questioning to our authorities and institutions. There are so many contradictions in what we are. We are so globalized and yet so isolated. We are so interconnected and yet so introverted that we are truly a generation of ambiguity. It's hard to pin it down, and that's almost an identity in what we are. And I think that leads us very much into a conversation about the themes that Christopher Nolan is playing with, just trying to understand what our historical epoch is can be such a, uh, a confusing and fruitful venture that it leads us into the idea of making art to try to reflect it. One year before 9-11, which I think will come to define our age, both artistically, politically, 
um, and one of the factors in that will define our age artistically, politically, scientifically, a movie called Memento came out by a little unknown director named Christopher Nolan, and it was his second venture at a feature film. And in this is a, the main character, Lenny, who suffers from a disorder in which he cannot form short-term memories. He can form long-term memories, and he can condition himself to know patterns and repetition, but no short-term memories. If you meet him 20 minutes later, you are forgotten. And in that, we see a movie that runs in two different linear directions. It starts at the end, its flashbacks are at the beginning, and it meets in the middle. And it's in the middle of this movie where the cross-section of its moral and spiritual conflict comes to pass, where he is in one narrative friend on one side of the, the narrative, a helper on the other side of a narrative, the very man he ends up killing turns out that he is Teddy. He is a John G. He is a detective that has been helping Lenny avenge what Lenny believes to be the murder of his wife comes to find out Lenny murdered his own wife through the, uh, injecting her with insulin so much that she dies due to his condition and that he has been twisting and bending and like warping reality around his quest to find John G. And in this steps, Teddy who's been manipulating the quest for him and for Lenny to make money at the climax of this film. We are asked a question. Is it okay to lie to yourself to make yourself happy? Does the world exist when you close your eyes? Mm. These questions are pseudo answered by Lenny, who says, I will lie to myself to make myself happy. The world is there when I close my eyes. Yeah, the world is something that I can see at the end. I'm not a killer. I'm just someone who wanted to make something right, Lenny tells himself. You know, and I had to believe in a world outside my own mind. Something that he said, we all need mirrors to remind ourselves who we are. Right. I am no different. These are lines that Lenny says to himself. But in reality, he's decided to murder Teddy because Teddy has been manipulating him to make money. And he has decided that in doing so, he is going to make Teddy become the, the murderer of his wife, even though he now knows... He now knows that that is not true, objectively not true. He then contradicts himself and says, yeah, the world still exists, and yeah, my actions matter. However, because of my condition, I can lie to myself and make whatever reality I want. So I would say the lesson of, of Memento, if we can, is that, A, is there such a thing as a self without memory? Does the self sustain itself throughout time if the self does not remember the thing that just happened? Um, and in doing so, how do our memories correlate to how we shape the world around us? And, and most importantly, most importantly, does what we do matter in the light of the, these? And in typical Christopher Nolan fashion, these are not concretely answered questions. Yes, there's an objective world. Lenny kills someone, the person is dead. Even if he doesn't remember it, the person is still dead. 
However, to Lenny, he has to find that person again and kill them again. So to Lenny, that person is not dead. And in this jumbled mess, we get, at the end of the day, an individual who chooses his own pleasure, which is the hunt for his wife's killer that doesn't exist, over the truth. We Yeah, we have a character who chooses a lie, who chooses a lie that is... Um, that is disgraceful, who chooses a lie that is out of vengeance, who chooses a lie that is violent uh, in order to preserve a sense of continuity, in order to preserve a sense of righteousness. Uh, And there is something deeply unsettling about this because even though it feels so far from our own experience, like I wake up and I remember what happened yesterday, so I don't have this exact experience where I have a condition like this. Um, But there is something about Nolan's insight into the human condition and saying, given the opportunity, a man who thinks he is doing the right thing will choose his own bliss his own blissful ignorance overdoing the right thing is scary. It shows us a side of ourselves that we are not terribly comfortable with. And it's not too much of a leap to imagine yourself in Lenny's situation having to make the same choice. It would be very difficult to make the virtuous choice in that situation, given the options that you have. And it speaks almost to an idea of, of memory and amnesia that is a little more personal, that is a little more realistic, right? And you talked about how this is a pre-9-11 movie. This came out in 2000. But there's something about that idea of amnesia that watched through a post-9-11 lens feels eerily prescient, right? So... Most Americans today don't remember that they supported the war in Iraq. You know, most Americans today think they were opposed to the war on terror from the beginning because they're opposed to it now, because that makes it easier. But most of us were like ready to charge into war. People forget that the war in Iraq passed 99 to 1 in the Senate. Yeah. The Patriot, I think, passed 100 to 0. And there's something about this idea of choosing to look away that uh, that speaks to something really universal in Memento that makes us terribly uncomfortable. And living in that ambiguity of thinking, I know I'm a good person, but what if something tempted me off the ledge? What if something tempted me into doing the wrong thing to preserve my ideas of who I am? It's scary. Nolan's showing us a scary side of ourselves and a scary, cynical look at human nature through Memento. I'd like to focus on a line that Lenny tells himself, because I'm glad you brought that up, that I just quoted. I'm not a killer. I'm just someone who wanted to make something right. He says this after having just killed a man that he knows is not the killer of his wife and planning to kill another man who he knows is not the killer of his wife. Lenny's power of self-deception, his power of lying to himself to make himself happy, has nothing to do with his condition, right? The condition is the mechanism that lets him do it without guilt. Yeah. Because he doesn't know that he did it. 
because of that, we're seeing someone freed from the consequences of their own memory, able to do horrible and terrible things and plan to do horrible and terrible things. And this way, when we see the protagonist in the middle of the story, we see what a ugly and horrible human being Lenny has truly become because of this trauma. And because of that, he's looking at the eye of the storm saying, you know what? I am going to walk right out of this eye. Teddy, ironically, at the climax of that movie, gives him a chance, gives him a chance to write down the quest is over. I completed, right? Gives him the opportunity to take a picture of himself and be like, I'm the killer. Stop killing. Right. All things that he could have done. Instead, what does he do? He plans to repeat the same process over. In that, like you're saying with 9-11, Lenny can replicate the cyclical nature of destruction that humans are capable of. Ooh, yeah. Right? And so you're saying, I see the way we forget that we supported the war in Iraq. Right? I see the way that we forget that we supported the war on terror, even though most Americans don't support the things that we have done in the name of war and terror since then. It is us choosing to engage in this forgetfulness. In the same way, culturally, how many Americans supported Donald Trump putting kids into camps? Woof, yeah. And how many of them, when that's going to go down in history as an epic moral and humanitarian crime are going to be like, well, I never supported that. So I think that is a interesting lesson of memento. And I think it necessitates that there is an objective reality outside of our own perception and our own uh, way that we, we choose to view the world. Lenny is wrong, right? And in this way, Nolan is not telling necessarily a cynical tale about the human condition, but rather a warning of what we can all succumb to. A cautionary tale. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. And Nolan's films, uh, very much originating in Memento and his earlier work, but continuing throughout most of his work, I would say pretty much everything except Dunkirk, is deeply informed by film noir, which is a cinematic style that developed in the 40s and 50s, um, which you know, most people are familiar with as a style as Venetian blinds and hard-boiled detectives and femme fatales, but it was characterized by a cynical attitude uh, toward authority and toward institutions, and it was characterized by a uh, a level of post-war disillusionment that was erupting out of the public's opinion towards the Second World War that was erupting out of, uh, you know, how people were having to deal with living during wartime and then coming back to a world that hadn't been totally fixed. And so for Nolan to be informed by this kind of filmmaking, it necessitates some characters who are going to be, uh, uh, who are going to characterize that type of cynicism. But I think you're right in that Nolan rarely succumbs to that. And we'll see as we kind of journey through his other films that he transcends that in a way but he is aware of it and he's interested in deconstructing it or subverting it in a lot of cases. In this case, offering it as a cautionary tale. In other words, one might say madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. Yeah. 
So if I catch your drift, I think you're trying to uh, segue into the dark night, which means let's talk about 9-11. Okay, let's do it. Let's talk about it. We are moving from a 2000 movie to a 2008 movie. And there is a very big event that happened in the meantime, which is that the United States was attacked on its own soil. Um, and a horrific thing happened and an iconic New York City landmark was destroyed and, uh, and so, so many people lost their lives on that day. And it was a terrible tragedy. And it's a trauma, as, as you said, that we are still collectively healing from uh, and something that instilled fear in our hearts that we had not felt before, something that introduced so many people to the idea that we as Americans are not necessarily the heroes of our own stories like we thought that we were, that there are people out there who hate us. Um, and I know I was 10 years old when that happened, and I was like, oh, there are people who hate America. And it was pretty, um, it was traumatic for me. But what happened in art and what happened in cinema after this? Because as a nation heals, uh, those machines don't stop moving. People still need to make money. Industries need to keep going and we need to keep plugging away. And so movies in the years after that chose collectively to look away from the trauma. Um, Sex and the City famously removed the Twin Towers from the opening credits, and I think several shows that were shot in New York removed um, those images of the skyline because... They re redid the first Spider-Man movie because they, yeah. the climax had a, I think it was the, the Trade Center being destroyed. Yeah. And they redid the entire end of that movie. I think the, the fairy scene was originally him holding the towers together, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and there's even a, a completely inoffensive Disney animated movie called Lilo and Stitch, where the adorable alien character Stitch in the original scene was flying a Boeing 747 through a cityscape and dodging it like a slalom. And it's a lighthearted scene, but they redrew it so that he's flying an alien spaceship through a mountain range because we were so um, affected by that. And because it was so much at the forefront of our memory uh, that it was not something that we could tiptoe around in storytelling. It was something that we had to, either completely look away from or completely sentimentalize. Um, so what does that mean for the landscape after that for movies? And where does Christopher Nolan fit within this world? Well, you know, Christopher Nolan, he will never just dance around something. He will take the theme and he will place it in front of you and if you don't get it, he'll probably clock you on the head with the theme a few times. And The Dark Knight is about law enforcement's attempt to stop a terrorist. And a terrorist's name is the Joker. And they don't hide from it. They call him a terrorist many, many times. And Batman has, in essence, been deputized by the Gotham Police Force. And even in the climax of the movie utilizes cell phones for a very immoral and certainly highly illegal evasion of everyone's privacy, turning cell phones into a weapon to stop the Joker. 
And like I said previously, this comes out of an era where after uh, this event happened, as the president, George W. Bush at the time, was considering invading Iraq on the premise of there being weapons of mass destruction, there was a near universal support for the president in whatever move he made. Like you said, it was 99-1 in the Senate, and popular opinion reached levels as high as 80% for invading Iraq. Uh, and our films were either, like I said, looking away or creating you know, obvious imagery like Steven Spielberg's War of the World as allegory. Uh, and Christopher Nolan, beginning with the Batman Begins installment of the trilogy, started to kind of poke through that veneer, saying, we're not making allegory, we're not looking away, we are talking about this on a level that people can relate to, and no one can mistake this for anything other than what it is. We are saying there are people out in the world who just want to destroy things, who just want to watch the world burn, who you have to be afraid of. And there are also those people on your own side. And there's something about that courage to make that kind of movie that was revolutionary. And there's something about that that is, like Memento, scary, showing us Two-Face, showing us the Joker, showing us that, like gravity, all we need is a little push to change you know, our idea of what our human nature could be. So there are two climaxes to this movie. Um, the first climax is within the two boats. And the Joker wanting to battle Batman directly for the soul of Gotham. Joker wants to prove to Batman that morality is something that humans or humans, people, Gothamites will drop at the first sign of trouble. So he doctors up this elaborate terrorist scheme in which there's a boat of prisoners and there's a boat of civilians and they both are given the switch to destroy each other. And if one doesn't destroy the other, Joker will blow up both. He is forcing them into a consequentialist moral moral scenario. Yeah, he's forcing them into the trolley experiment. And juxtaposed to that is Batman and Joker actually combating and fighting each other in the building where the Joker is hidden out, right. waiting for this to come to a head. A normal, I must say normal, the standard superhero paradigm, this would be the climax of the movie. Um, and in many ways, it deserves to be the climax of this movie as it builds and builds and the suspense is palpable and Batman is using his uh, sonar, you know, glasses to find the Joker and it's really just amazing. And there's a beautiful moment where a convict takes the switch and throws it out the window and then goes and sits and starts to pray. And that's when we understand that maybe... Batman is right about the soul of Gotham. Gothamites are fundamentally good. And all it takes is inspiration, guidance, and leadership from the right people to which people will choose to, to, to act in a more moral way. And then Joker, laughingly. And I love the way that Christopher Nolan does this as a director. The Joker's hanging upside down, and Batman is looking at him, and Christopher Nolan, as the Joker laughs, switches the camera so that they're eye to eye. 
Yeah. So that they're equals telling us no one here is really upside down. And so that we are equals too, right? So it's not just Batman seeing eye to eye with the Joker. It's us. It's reminding us that we are looking in a mirror to some extent, that there is always the option for us to fall unless we are able to make a choice like the prisoner on the boat, like the civilian on the boat, that we have the the potential to be that person. He puts us on that level. And with the Joker's game having failed, we get to the true climax, the failed triumvirate of Jim Gordon, Harvey Dent, and Bruce Wayne. Right. And the bloody consequences that Harvey Dent has been destroyed physically, psychologically. And in that scene, we see Harvey, Jim, and Batman morally debate what's right. And this, to me, is the climax of the actual philosophical moment of the movie. The battle with the Joker is the dramatic climax, but this is where truly the real debate for Gotham's soul is happening because the Joker's been caught, and whoever comes out of this will be able to dictate whether Gotham loses hope or maintains hope. And as we all have seen the movie, we know that Harvey dies and Batman takes responsibility for Harvey's murder, even though he didn't, well, he did kill Harvey, and responsibility for the people Harvey killed. In this, we see the idea of what's called the noble lie being perpetuated. Um, We see that Batman decides that he can be whatever Gotham needs him to be as a symbol and not as a man. Whatever Gotham needs, he can absorb and take on, even if that means doing something untruthful. The idea of the noble lie dates back to ancient Greece. It was uh, something that Plato discussed in the Republic, and it's based upon a society in which there is a ruling class and that the ruling class realizes that things will work better if people generally believe some basic assumptions. Whether those assumptions are true or not are irrelevant, but it will help make society function. The story that Socrates tells in uh, Plato's Republic is this Phoenician story that all humanity are made up of certain types of metals. Some are made of gold, some are made of silver, some are made of bronze, some are made of iron. Based upon what metal you're made up of will determine where you are in society. It's not determined by birth, it's determined by action. But people will be more than willing to accept that they're a farmer if a farmer is made of brass than a ruler if a ruler is made of gold. And the idea is perpetuate an untruth to preserve a greater truth, which is a functional and healthy society. Right. Batman makes this decision and makes this decision at the end of the Dark Knight by taking Harvey's duties, Two-Face's crimes as his own, allows himself to become the hero that Gotham deserves, but not the hero that Gotham needs. Yeah, the lie that he preserves is that Harvey, this person that you put your faith in, this white knight that Gotham has been waiting for, who will lock up the criminals and will clean up Capitol Hill, is everything that you have wanted him to be. He died a hero, and you can put your faith in people who lead you. It's okay to do that. 
And he does that by becoming the scapegoat for, uh, for that person to maintain their status in death. The line that I love the most uh, in his final justification for what he's about to do, Batman says, sometimes the truth isn't good enough. Sometimes people deserve more. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. This doesn't come out of any kind of uh, desire to deceive the public. This doesn't come out of any kind of self-righteousness or wanting to be better than others. This comes out of, I saw the best of people tonight. I saw people make the most virtuous decision in the most horrible of crises. And I think they deserve to be rewarded for having faith in good. And this is the kind of place where I see Christopher Nolan leaning away from cynicism, right? So this is where, even though in Memento, even though in The Joker and in Harvey Dent, he has shown us the worst of what we can become, he also shows us the best. He shows us people making the right decision in a crisis, and he shows us a character with an immense amount of power making a huge self-sacrifice in order to preserve that faith. And to show us that kind of uh, that kind of virtue takes bravery and requires us to have a lot of faith in the director. And I think that will carry him into uh, the further films that he makes, where he will try to show us again that there is something within us that is better than we thought. However, I would like to point this out where Christopher Nolan is still playing in ambiguous waters. Absolutely. The movie doesn't end with Gotham's soul being redeemed. We don't know that at the end of it. Of course. It ends with a risk. Batman saying, I will lie to make sure the Joker doesn't win. We don't know if it pays off, but it's making the decision to lie, right? To make sure he defeats his enemy. Mm, yeah. And in that respect, we are seeing Batman destroyed symbolically, philosophically. What Batman stands for in The Dark Knight is a representation of rules, even though not in a pragmatic way, not in the like law and order style. Right. Of he rules, is a right? v- vigilante. Yeah. Right. Because he breaks all of the rules of conventional society and has. But But more in the sense of what we were talking about last week with cardinal virtues, right? He stands for basic fundamental rules. Those with power, if you have it, you must use it for good. You cannot use it to terrorize the weak. And his problem is that the people with power in Gotham use it to terrorize the weak. So his his whole mission from Batman Begins is to turn fear upon those that prey on the fearful. And in doing so, conquer his own fear. Yeah. Now, after he conquered his own fear into the dark night, he sees something he never anticipated. Someone that wanted to destroy Gotham just to prove a point to Batman. The madness and insanity is nothing that he is prepared for. He starts this movie, The Dark Knight, thinking the criminal isn't complicated. However, the Joker is infinitely complicated and complex. Underestimated at every level. And seeing that, it, there's a point in the movie before we get to the end where he's like, I see what I have to become to defeat a man like Joker. 
and I'm not willing to cross that line, right? Instead of giving up the cowl at that point, what does he do? He becomes the very thing he said he would never be, mm. which is a breaker of the, the moral rules. He lies to defeat the Joker. We don't know if it works. Maybe it's the right thing to do, and maybe it is a noble lie, but a lie though it is, Batman is destroyed. One of the last shots of the movie is an axe on the bat signal. Batman has been broken and defeated by the Joker in this movie. Yeah. And there is an ambiguity there, though I totally agree with your 100% of your point. Like, I think all of it's true, but the the other side to that, that like, scarred-up coin is that this for this to happen, the Batman had to be destroyed. And in the destruction of the Batman, the Joker still gets a win. Because though he didn't destroy Gotham's soul, he still got to destroy the Batman. And that ambiguity of who is really right, are our morals just a bad joke? Or, you know, is the, the Joker a monster? Or is he ahead of his curve? Is not truly 100% answered. Right. Yes. Okay. You are 100% right. You are 100% right. And the Dark Knight plays so, um, so powerfully with those themes of duality of, uh, of dichotomies in even our own identities and souls. We each, uh, everybody in the Dark Knight has a doppelganger or is themselves a, um, an alter ego for somebody else. There is always going to be a tug of war between our nobler selves and our baser selves. There is always going to be a battle for the soul of our society or a battle for our own individual soul. And Christopher Nolan refuses to give us easy answers here. And he refuses to give us easy answers in most of his movies. Rather, he gives us questions that we will continue to battle with for our entire drive home from the theater for the rest of you know the year for the rest of our lives in some cases, as we determine the kinds of people that we want to be. Yeah. Uh, should we move into Inception? Let's move into Inception. All right. So Inception and Inception's theme. So this is a whale of a topic. There are podcasts dedicated to it. There are YouTube videos at nauseum dedicated to figuring out what the end means. Um, uh, and they're all great. Like, and I've in preparation of this podcast, I've taken apart a lot of those discussions, a lot of those debates, a lot of those essays and, and readings, and I think they're all really neat and cool. We all also know if we've been paying attention to Twitter that Michael Caine maybe let something slip this week about the actual ending of uh, of Inception, where he referred to a conversation he and Christopher Nolan had about the script. Michael Caine said, I'm confused. When is it a dream and when is it reality? And Christopher Nolan said, if you're in the scene, it's reality. There's a lot of people making noise on the internet that that determines the ending of uh, Inception uh, concretely for all of us. But for the purposes of our conversation, I think it's bigger than that. It's bigger than is Cobb dreaming or is Cobb awake? Well, real quick recap. At the end of the movie, after planting the idea into the you know energy mogul tycoon's son that he should dissolve his empire, they all wake up from the shared dream. Cobb walks into L.A.'s airport after Saito has promised to fix his chargers, 
charges against him, fixes the charges. We see him walk into his old home, and for one moment, he takes his totem, the item by which helps him understand if he's dreaming or if he's awake, and spins the top. Should the top fall, he is awake. Should it stay spinning in perpetuity, he is dreaming. He sees the face faces of his children, and he ignores the top. The camera goes right down to the top. Maybe it's about to fall. Maybe it doesn't. Camera cuts to black. Yeah. The ultimate ambiguous ending that people have pulled their hair out over for eight years. And regardless of Michael Caine's little slip of the tongue this week, I think it's something that uh, that tugs at us for a lot of reasons. Because the idea of our reality not being real is terrifying. Because it matters for us to be in a reality that is objective um, because we want to feel like we are in control of ourselves in space and time. But like Lenny from Memento, Cobb, when he turns away from the top, is making the choice to say, I'm in reality. He gets, for the first time in that entire movie, he's deciding what's real. And that, to me, is the, is the ultimate meaning there. He's chosen to no longer guess, no longer play, no longer letting a piece of metal decide whether he blows his brains out or not, and saying, I am in reality. And in this reality that I'm in, I will be with my children Maybe he's lying to himself to make himself happy. Maybe he is in reality and he finally, finally woke up to it. We won't know because Inception is a movie in which layers of reality and false reality and dream are being piled on top of each other to the point where we're all confused and we should be. Nolan is trying to confuse us. But the significant moment of that end is that for the first time, we see Cobb make a choice wholly on his own. He makes a leap of faith, as so many characters have advised him to do. He makes the radical choice that he is going to determine what his perception is of reality and that he is going to accept that this reality where he has his family, where he has a chance at happiness, is enough for him, regardless of whether it is objectively real or not. And maybe he's lost his mind. Maybe he's in the dream world. However, what's important is his autonomy. You know, a reflection that I have on Interstellar is that... Inception. Know, I'm sorry, Inception. We'll, we will get to Interstellar. We will get Thank there. You. Your time slippage is all off. Absolutely. Well, I'm really close to a black hole <laughs> and I'm also dreaming. So who knows what the fuck's oh happening? Oh my God. Yeah. And I can't remember any of my short-term memories. Absolutely. And you know what? I will do everything in my power to defeat what I think is madness and evil. Um, anyway. Dreams that to me for a long period of human history, they were thought to be a portent from the divine plane. And when you had a dream you took the dream to a soothsayer to interpret and understand. The more vivid the dream, the more it was said to be a portent. Um, we see this in narratives like the Epic of Gilgamesh, where Gilgamesh has three dreams. Uh, we see this in epic poetry of the ancient world. And then we see this 
uh, it, you know, up until the idea of modernity. And even then, in modernity as we know it, there emerged uh, different psychological theories around dreams and dream interpretation was still considered to be a central point of understanding the psyche. Maybe it wasn't gods and demons and angels speaking to you, but it was a deep well of your subconscious speaking to you worthy of examination. This is no longer as in fashion and as prominent as it used to be. And the thing that I, I take away from the end of Inception is, are dreams valuable? I think Nolan is telling us in this movie they are. They are near indistinguishable from reality. And hence, how do we know what's real or what's not? And in this way, I walk away from Inception realizing I need to take dreams more seriously. There is a, um, you know, a relationship to Plato here as well. We have talked about Plato's allegory of the cave on the podcast before, but essentially it boils down to the idea that your reality is what you are experiencing based on what you can perceive. And if somebody came in and opened up your perception and showed you that there was a world outside of the cave that you've been living in, your mind might completely collapse, but you'd understand something on a higher level than you do now. Our perception in dreams is that we are in reality, even though the reality of dreams is often beyond physics, beyond our understanding, beyond uh, regular intuition. It's an explosion of our subconscious. It's an explosion of the things that we experience in real reality. Uh, but who is to say that that world that we experience in dreams is not real? Who has that authority to right. take the realness of dreams away? And if Cobb is dreaming at the end of Inception, clearly Nolan is saying no one. No one has the authority to take the realness away. And in that way, dreams need to be taken seriously. I don't mean to insinuate that all dreams are objective reality, um, but... I am willing to insinuate that the choice to embrace the dream, if that's what Cobb is doing at the end of this movie, is his choice and the first one he makes in the whole movie. Yeah. The entire movie is things happening to Cobb and him dealing with the things that are happening to him. Right? And then at the very end, he makes a choice, which is to walk away. And sometimes that is the most significant choice. And shouldn't his faith be rewarded? Shouldn't that leap of faith to walk away from the top be rewarded with him getting to finally hug his children? I would say yes. And I think it, what isn't significant is what literally happens. Exactly. What is significant is how did what happened make, make you feel and what do you take away from it? Right. Uh, not to say that, you know, there isn't truth in art, but... Inception is designed to subvert the idea that there is even truth. So if there is no truth, if truth is an artifact of per perception, and I'm not saying that, that there is no truth, but Inception is playing with the idea that maybe there is no objective reality. And if there is no objective reality, then it comes down to the choices we make in the falsehoods. And as Christopher Nolan said at... Princeton, uh, at Princeton's commencement address, 
all levels of reality are equally valid. I think you said maybe. Maybe all levels of reality are equally valid. Because that's Ambiguity. Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Living in the, the zeitgeist of the ambiguous. Absolutely. The zeitgeist of the undefinable. The, <laughs> the, the culture that is, and the time that is both A, the most definable, and B, the most undefinable simultaneously. It's quite a time to be alive, isn't it? Yes, if you like being confused. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is quite a time to be alive. So shall we move on to a little bit of a discussion about Interstellar? We shall, we shall indeed. Would you like to kick it off? So Interstellar is interesting. It came out in 2014, and of Christopher Nolan's movies, it's among the most polarizing in terms of the critical and audience reception to it. Um, in particular, the critical reception. In particular, the critical reception. I think it has the lowest critical review on Rotten Tomatoes of all of his movies. Yeah. So the critics compared to other movies, they disliked it. It didn't get like a 45, but it got his lowest score. And just for like some perspective, Interstellar is probably my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. I appreciate you being open and honest with that. Yeah. Um, I guess I should say The Dark Knight's Mine. Right. Um, it's his sci-fi epic about, uh, you know, an Earth a few decades in the future where we have run out of food and it's reminiscent of the uh, Dust Bowl Midwest of the Grapes of Wrath uh, in the 1930s. And as humanity is trying to figure out whether it will die out on this planet or find a new home, a group of, uh, of NASA engineers and astronauts and scientists take off to try and find a new habitable planet. But the climax of this movie takes place uh, near a black hole. And while this movie has a lot to do with familial relationships and abandonment and the bonds and the ties that bind us through our love for each other, through our connections with each other. There is nothing more powerful in this movie than the idea of time, which slips away from us every moment. It's slipping away from us now. And as the characters within it have um, tried to save all of humanity, they have gotten further and further away in space and time from the people that they love to a point where they may never be able to reconnect. And as Cooper, our main character, uh, hopes to get back to Earth, he chooses eventually to sacrifice himself in order for his colleague, Dr. Brand, to make it to the last possibly habitable planet, and Cooper shoots himself into the black hole. This is where he encounters the bulk beings who are fifth dimensional beings who open up a tesseract, a essentially a portal that's a key to a single point in space and time where he can communicate back to those that he loves on earth so that they might have the information to save the entire human race. And while it sounds complicated, interstellar is a love story which seems almost incongruous with what Christopher Nolan has served us previously. A father-daughter love story, too. Not even a romantic love story. Yeah, but a a universal love story that says that your connection with another person 
might be the most powerful force in the entire cosmos and might transcend all dimensions, space, time, and beyond. And that's kind of a disarming and unsettling thing to say to an audience that is global, interconnected, interested in ambiguity, and also somehow detached from a great deal of emotion, detached from sincerity, and deeply steeped in questioning authority, questioning uh, old institutions. I spent a lot of time in preparation of our discussion on Interstellar and its climax, reading the negative reviews by critics, um, trying to understand what made Interstellar the least critically well-reviewed movie of his career. Um, rather than summarizing what they all said and, and trying to refute that, I think it is fair to say that Interstellar failed to connect on an emotional level the way his other movies did. And I think the reason it failed to connect was because people had an expectation of the Nolan brand. And that expectation would be that it had a more cool, antithetical, detached uh, aesthetic tone to it. Right. And Interstellar did not have that tone. It has a father crying, looking at videos videos of his children. Um, you know, it has a scientist arguing to go to a planet that could potentially save the human race based upon the fact that her lover is there. It has a daughter who cannot handle the fact that her father abandoned her and carries that into adulthood. It has these very real, powerful human emotions behind it, um, juxtaposed to the most complex and realistic sci-fi movie ever, potentially. I, I don't know of one more realistic. Right. That That didn't pan out for a lot of critics. And what I think they missed, I think is what you are ultimately trying to hit at here was that despite it all, the complexity, all the ambiguity, the idea that humanity's time on planet earth is in fact limited, right? And interstellar puts that in our face, but we should all ruminate on that. We will not, if we are going to survive as a species, we will not be on this planet forever. Impossible. Eventually the time will come where we have to leave this planet or die. That's a fact. Whether it's the sun collapsing and we can no longer be in its orbit or the ecology of the planet changing or our destruction of it through fossil fuel emissions, whatever you want to say, eventually humanity will have to figure out a way to leave this planet or die in the face of that extinction, the, the vessel, the mechanism, the thing that will make us successful in the endeavor to leave, Interstellar says, is love. Is something we have always known. Is not some new high-tech uh, piece of technology. Is not some genius breakthrough that a scientist will have. It's our faith in something that we have always had faith in. And to say that to an audience who's expecting a big twist or to say that to an audience who's expecting 
uh, you know, something exciting and new can be disarming. The big twist is that it's love. The big twist the, is that the exciting and disarming thing you is that it's love. You've had the all along. Just click your heels together and say, "There's no place like home." Uh, uh, but that's magic, right. right? Interstellar is not about magic. Of course, it's not a magical solution. It is grounded in reality. In in the in as much as the movie is completely not grounded in reality because it's a movie, but like. It, it it stipulates objectively that love is a quantifiable phenomenon that can transcend gravity yeah. and time. Yeah. And because it can do that, it had the power to transmit the data from inside the black hole that humanity needed to leave planet earth and, and, and start their society in the stars. So like, you know, that is the twist. It's not that Christopher Nolan didn't have a twist. It's not that Christopher Nolan didn't play with our minds. He did. But instead of us leaving, wondering, man, is the Joker right? Or is Batman right? Instead of us leaving, is Cobb trapped in a deep, like weird dream? Or does he actually get happiness? Instead of saying, can someone that wants justice really just be lying to themselves the whole time and just be wanting vengeance. He says, can the universe be saved through the power of love? Maybe. And I think this is all coming back to one thing, right? This comes back to the individual and to choice and to faith. It says that we can determine our outcomes. It says that we have power within us and that we are able to determine how our lives turn out, which is which is wild. It's radical to say that love conquers all, as classic of a film trope as that is. It is radical to say that you can choose your own reality. And here's where I think Christopher Nolan's kind of superpower as a filmmaker is that he's not the voice of the zeitgeist. He resists the zeitgeist. I think... That go on. That very interested here. So we we are effectively we are in the beginning of this guy's career, right? So he's been making movies since uh, the late '90s, and if he lives a long and healthy life, we have another twenty, thirty, maybe more years of filmmaking out of this person. But this is a guy who, over these past eighteen years or so has grown immensely and has evolved his relationship to the human condition, but has always been able to read what's inside people on a level of specificity that most mainstream directors are not able to do. And in doing so, in reading the room, the great global room, he's able to say, I know what they want, and I'm going to actively work against it to challenge their assumptions about what movies can be, to challenge their assumptions about what they can be. He gives us ambiguity when all we want is easy answers. And he gives us, he, he questions our sense of continuity when we're curating our lives for public consumption. And he reminds us of the selves that we would rather leave behind. So when we are looking for our movies to either distract us or entertain us beyond what we have expected or confirm what we already or know confirm what we already know he actively works to give us something that is against that grain and that's why we try to work through his endings that's why we are trying to pull apart every detail 
But at the end of the day, what really matters is how it made us feel about ourselves and our relationships to its themes. What matters are the choices that we make based on the art that we see. I think that is an interesting point. In the current zeitgeist, he is more a gadfly than he is uh, the molder and shaker, the unmoved mover. Right. He is more the person looking at the current zeitgeist and poking a hole, which is why I think his movies have and always will be hotly debated. There are very few that are universally reaped praise upon. Actually, I can only think of one, which is The Dark Knight, which everybody, for the most part, fucking loves. Yeah. Other than that, all of his movies, when when brought up, whether you're you're bringing up his movie when you're hanging out with your great aunt at a family reunion, or you're <laughs> hanging out with a bunch of philosophy and history geeks like Derek and Laurel, when you bring up his movies, a debate ensues. And in that way, he has given us a gift that transcends movie making and filmmaking. He's given us the ability through his movies to discuss, debate, and pick apart what they mean. And that, to me, is is his greatest gift. His ability to be, hey, we live in the era of ambiguity. We live in an atemporal time. We live in a digital time. And we live in a time where we have given up tremendous personal freedom in the name of security and safety uh, against enemies. And he looks at all of that and says, this is what's good. This is what's bad. And by the way, are you thinking about it critically? Mm. And sometimes it's just that. Are you thinking about it? The Dark Knight, are you thinking about whether or not it's okay to tap into cell phones to stop terrorists? Because you should. Memento, are you really forgetting the things you did in the past? Or are you remembering them? Are you even a real self if you can just choose to forget? You know, uh, then we go into Inception, which is be careful about the reality that you choose. Make sure you're choosing the reality that is the most real and most consistent with your values. And then lastly, Interstellar, which asks, I think, the most fundamental and important question of all of his movies. Do you feel love? I think Christopher Nolan, above all, understands our relationship to movies and understands our faith in art and our faith in cinema and has decided that sometimes our faith in the stories that we tell deserves to be rewarded. Absolutely. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>